Are you ready to be connected? You're listening to the Insured Connection Podcast by PICA Group, a pro-assurance company, where we provide expert advice for your practice when you need it most. We connect you with industry leaders to discuss timely topics so you can listen, learn, and get back to caring for your patients. Now, let's connect. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Insured Connection. Um, we have the honor of having Dr. Jeffrey Lehrman here on with me. When, if you're, you know, you're in practice, you're a practicing physician, and you have a candidate that you see, when is it appropriate to actually use a skin substitute, and how do you reflect that in your medical record? So first, always from the medical perspective, right? We learn this in school, hopefully, and we learn this in our training. <laughs> when when does this when is it warranted, right? Same time. Like we make a decision. When do I do an injection for fasciitis? When do I do a strapping? When do I do a surgery? When do I prescribe an oral anti-inflammatory? We got that all in our training, right? And the answer to when do you shift to skin substitute? We got that too, but then we look at the payer, right? So the answer again is look at, look, does this third party payer have a coverage policy for skin substitute? And if it does, that's what we have to follow. So I gave the example of this one I pulled up. So I picked Novitas, maybe a little selfish because it's my state where I practice and the state that I practiced in my whole career before moving three years ago. So I know it really well. It's my LCD I practice under. And this one happens to say that the wound must have been present and under our care, it says wound has to have been under your care for four weeks without demonstrating signs that it is likely to continue to improve if the same treatment course is continued. So while we might have in our mind when we need it from a clinical perspective, if we want to get paid to do it and keep that money, we also have to follow the third-party payers guidelines. And then this same policy, this is only 11 states plus Washington, D.C. So this is not everybody listening. I'm just using this as an example. This policy, when it's venous leg ulcer, it has to have been there for three months, which I think is terrible. That's awful, right? person has to fight with this thing for three months before we could use an advanced product like skin substitute on it. However, that's the rule. So if you want to get paid and you're a Novitas provider, just as an example, and it's venous leg, it has to have been there for three months. So you do it when your training tells you it's appropriate. And then the next layer is if you want to get paid and keep that money, when the third party payer says it's medically necessary, and we've checked all of those boxes, which might be four weeks without improvement or three months without improvement, depending on wound type. And then it might say uh, it has to be free of infection. You have to have appropriate offloading in place. It might say, some even say the hemoglobin A1C has to be under X, or it might say uh, that they're, um, it might say that their ABI has to be under a certain number, maybe. Absolutely. You know, so, and that really does, I mean, obviously getting into wounds, you know, speaking to referrals, you know, doing vascular testing and making sure there's no underlying osteo, you know, so to your point, um, just even there, right there, I mean, all of the, the time that goes into it beforehand, does that all need to be done by one physician by you? Or what if the patient has seen prior treating physicians? Depends on the policy. So now this get, this is a payer specific 
question, which is another reason why I see this. I hear people say it. I see it in like chat rooms and stuff. And people go on and ask, well, if it's Medicare, does it have to have been you or so? That's the wrong question. Medicare doesn't have that rule. Medicare is not the payer. It's the Medicare contractor. So the better question is, what does, if I'm in Florida, what does First Coast say about this, right? And most of them you'll find it's, for example, the four weeks thing, most of them it's four weeks under your care. Now, the venous leg thing is different. It has to have been present for three months and it doesn't, it might not payer, payer specific. It might not say under your care. So there it might be, you know, if the patient came in and says, this thing's been there for six months, maybe we could check that three month box already. But it depends on the payer and that payer's policy if they have one. That's one where I think I said there can be advantages and disadvantages. That's one where I think it can be a disadvantage because I think based on peer reviewed literature and the training that we receive that you absolutely could defend the medical necessity of doing it day one. If the patient comes in with a story that you trust that it's been there for however many months and what most... We can tell by looking at most of these things if it's been there for more than four weeks or not. That's <laughs> so true. Yeah. <laughs> no, and you bring up, I mean, that's that's entirely true. I mean, we see wounds, and I know I'm seeing plenty in my office, you know, whether it's venous or it's, you know, plantar wounds or dorsal wounds, whatever may be the cause. But I mean, you bring up such a good point that what is it, what is it that we're actually trying to do for these patients, you know? And um yeah, boy. So I, it's funny. I pulled up the LCD for Novitas as well. <laughs> That's a popular one. So real yeah. quick, though, I, I do have another question with respect to just medical necessity, you know, and standard of care. Yeah. You know, so a lot of I had a doctor recently ask me, he said, well, you know, my standard of care is maybe different for someone else. And I think they don't necessarily understand the definition of standard of care, you know, whether it's by, you know, a carrier's definition or whatever that may be, but what is the definition? If someone were to come to you or a young practitioner and say, what does that mean? standard of care, medical necessity, what does that mean? Yeah. So you're right. There's no such thing as my standard of care. It might be like my treatment algorithm or the way I was trained, but you don't get to define standard of care. I don't have the exact legal definition memorized, but it's something along the lines of what a uh, uh, what the average prudent physician in a similar situation would do. It, it's, it's something along those lines. I think an attorney could answer it better, but the, the bottom line is it's what's expected of you as a provider, right? And it can be geographically dependent if that care varies based on geography. But the, in, in, in these legal situations, they actually explain this to the jury, but it's something along the lines of what the average provider in a similar situation, what is expected of them. And we as providers, of course, are obligated to meet at least standard of care providing to our patients the the what would be expected at a at a bare minimum by other providers similarly trained to treat the same pathology right so i know with the cases that i've reviewed um and i know you similarly is you know you don't want to do something which they're looking at as being experimental you know yeah. experimental something that is um 
I don't want to say the word expensive, but it is cost effective, you know? And so it's interesting is like you said, I mean, the patients that we're treating, the cost has been documented so well for an amputation and the, the associated morbidity long-term, you know, and hospitalizations and the fees that if there is no LCD or if there isn't a coverage policy, you know, you really can win that battle. And so, you know, I, that's, that's unfortunately, I mean, that's something that we just don't know, you know? So in the case of not having a, an LCD, you know, what would you advise you, know, some of our listeners at that point? Yep. It goes back to that umbrella of medical necessity and explaining the why. So like you said, if the LCD is there, you check the boxes, you give them everything they said they want, but there are payers that don't have an LCD for skin substitute or, or lots of other services we perform. There are Medicare contractors. Like I said, there's seven Part B Medicare contractors. Only five of them have skin substitute LCDs. So we have lots and lots and lots of colleagues that, that don't have a skin substitute LCD for their state. That doesn't mean it's not covered. There's no LCD for ORIF of an ankle. There's no LCD for gallbladder removal. Those services are still covered. They, it, it just goes. And so then when you ask them, well, if there's not an LCD, how do I know? They say we will pay if it is medically necessary. So then you go back to the idea of selling them on the medical necessity of this and not just treating it as a matter of course, but instead explaining why this is needed. And and I would say, I think I I don't, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I think some people get intimidated when they hear that, if it's something they're not comfortable with or not accustomed to. But rest assured, you do know what the medical necessity is. You learned it in school. You learned it in your training. If you have a license and you're practicing and you did residency training, you know what it is and be confident in your knowledge of what it is. But then you have to document it. And if you're asking well, how do I know what's good enough? It's not like how many sentences or how long it has to be. When people ask me, how do I know if I've done a good enough job of establishing medical necessity? It, it's two things. One is when the reader reads it, are they going to get done and say, okay, I see why they did this. And the other is if a medical director, now this is a colleague, a doctor were to say to you, why did you do this? Could you give a reasonable explanation that you feel comfortable with where they're not going to wrinkle their eyes at you and say, what are you talking about? But instead say, I got it. That makes sense. That those are, those are the guidelines to go by in the absence of an LCD. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's important. That's good to know. Um, so for you personally, do you get pre-op or pre-procedure vascular testing done on your patients, what do you do before you would consider something like a skin substitute? Definitely. And okay. this, yes, I do. And this shifts more to a clinical discussion, but I can't resist because I think it's so important. Uh, I was the medical director at a hospital outpatient department wound healing center for many years. And early on there, I learned uh, that there was a paper and I can't quote it because I don't have it in front of me, but if we stall long enough, I might be able to find it. Uh, there's a paper. And, and you know what? I don't have to quote the numbers. The bottom line is palpating pedal pulses does not rule out peripheral arterial disease. This is not just a podiatry thing. It is a very common error among clinicians. The fact that we can feel pedal pulses 
does not rule out the presence of peripheral arterial disease. That is not opinion. That is not, it happens to be my experience, but I'm not saying it because it is. There is robust peer-reviewed literature to support any diabetic foot ulcer patient, whether we feel the pulses or not, should have non-invasive vascular studies. That is really important to be a good doctor, and it's really important risk management. The jury wants you to order arterial studies, whether you feel pedal pulses or not. Because if we do feel pedal pulses and something goes bad, plaintiff's attorney is going to hammer us on that. I've seen it. They have access to the same journal, I'm, the same ar articles I'm talking about. They're online. They're not hard to find. And they can very clearly establish the fact that you documented plus two out of four DP and PT pulses bilateral does not rule out peripheral arterial disease. So I'm getting fired <laughs> up because I've seen too many friends, go, colleagues, <laughs> too many colleagues go down because they say, what do you mean? I felt their pulses. Yeah. I didn't have to order anything. Doctor. Yes, you did. So yes. And, and the reason I said the wound center thing is as medical director, I implemented that every single patient with a diabetic for ulcer gets non-invasive arterial studies because not because I thought so, but because peer review literature demands that we do that. And, and what I wanted to get to was beyond the literature, then I can share from my experience, we found stuff. We found patients that had arterial disease so bad that they needed intervention that had palpable pulses. So not only can we say literature, 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 I can share in my experience, it made a difference in our outcomes. So yes, uh, I think I've made it clear the, the <laughs> literature suggests and the plaintiff's attorney and jury wants you to order non-invasive arterial studies before putting a skin substitute product on a distal extremity. So I feel like we should make that into a bumper sticker or something that I would make t-shirts. <laughs> Pedal pulses do not matter. <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, because we're, you know, we're taught differently. And the majority of our patients, I mean, end-stage renal disease, you know, diabetes, you know, even in, in the absence of diabetes. And we know microvascular disease. You know, so I think that that yes. is a huge point that you bring up. Yes. Yeah, where are these ulcers? They're sub one, sub five, plantar hallux. So the fact that we can feel a pulse at the midfoot, it does not tell us what's going on at the plantar aspect of the first metatarsal head. It's a lot of bad stuff that can happen between those two areas. And not only can a lot of bad stuff happen, that's actually where most of the bad stuff happens, right. especially in the diabetic population. Right. And then the other aspect of it is you have some, you have some podiatrists, you have some clinicians that are preferring to do all of their own vascular testing in office. And then some that are referring out, do you tend towards one or the other? What's your thought process on that? If you're going to do it yourself, be sure that you have the appropriate training and comfort level to do it. To, for any provider type, DPM, MD, whatever, I would never say across the board, it's safer to send it out. Mm -hmm. It might be. However, there are wound care providers of this. And again, this is not a podiatry thing of all degree types that have no business doing that and shouldn't be doing it. There are others that do. They got it in their training. Maybe they did postgraduate training and got a certificate. and 
And if you want to zero in on podiatrists, I've talked to podiatrists who say, I took this course and I have whatever extra certification, and I'd be willing to put my skills up against any provider type in reading these. Okay. That's, and if you can sell that to a jury, fine, but be careful. It's not an automatic that just because you're a doctor of any type that you should be doing that. And plaintiff's attorney will go after you regardless of podiatry or not. Right. Who read the arterial studies, doctor? I did. Oh, uh, and then, and I'm being dramatic, but this is what happens. So they true. do put on a show for the That's jury, true. right? They'll go, oh, uh, so wait, are, are you a vascular, are you a vascular surgeon? Vascular <laughs> That's what they do. Well, no. Oh, wait. So, oh, well, you must be a radiologist then. And to those that haven't seen this nightmare or the grossness of this, <laughs> that exact thing happens because they watch television and the jury watches television too and they're they're playing to their audience which is a jury who they don't know this stuff and they can really make you sound like a fool or attempt to so if you're going to do it yourself just be sure you have the training and certification and whatever else to do it and if you do go for it and don't let them scare you out of providing the care that you're trained to provide but make sure you have that training and certification. Absolutely. So yeah, I feel like at this point, we need to role play just that because people don't necessarily, if they haven't seen it, they don't realize how aggressive some of you know, some of these uh, defendants can actually get, you know what I mean? Or when they're coming after you, especially in depositions, yep. you know? And so I'm, I remember um, an attorney friend of mine actually talking and saying that, you know, the, the physician had read the radiology report and he said, well, are you a radiologist? Well, mm -hmm. could you please show me a certification? So to your point, we yeah. are clinicians, we are physicians, we, you know, whether it's a chiropractor or even an attorney, whatever your craft may be, you know, make sure that whatever you're endeavoring upon that you have the certification for and you can stand by it, you know? So that's yeah. And, and we are podiatrists and we are very pro podiatry, mm -hmm. but to keep it real, if you are a limited licensed provider, which podiatrists are, they are more likely to go after you for things like that. So Absolutely. It, 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 it's all the more reason to be more careful. And then what they'll do, and they'll get, if it is a vascular thing, right? So, so we're zeroing in on doing your own read, your own interpretation of the vascular studies. If they want to say that you got it wrong, they'll put an MD on the stand. Right. The, exactly. Yep. The plaintiff's attorney will put a vascular surgeon and and then you know and bill them up in front of the jury. And how many hours did you spend in your residency training reviewing these? And right. And now we get an attorney also, and not to say we're we're gonna lose this every time, but we, we get to defend ourselves, of course, but that's what happens. True. It is absolutely true. <laughs> you played that out well. <laughs> um Yes. Okay. So, you know, rounding this out, if you had to kind of give, you know, and I love to, to, to bring everything together, almost like a tips, quips, and pearls for our listeners, you know, for mm -hmm. tips, quips, and pearls with respect to this, with skin substitutes, you know, whether flowables or whatnot, and just dealing with these type of patients and, and our clinicians that are interested in doing this or are currently doing it, what are your top tips, quips, and pearls? Do what you learned in school. And if you want to get paid for it, also, you must know who the patient's third-party payer is. 
And yeah, that stinks. And you might say, I just want to be a doctor. Well, if you sign the contract to accept money from somebody else, then now you've agreed to follow their rules. So who is the patient's third party payer? And do they have a coverage policy for this service? And if they do find it and read it and follow the rules, if they do not, or if they do, you also must establish medical necessity in the documentation. And I'm trying to think of all the stuff we talked about. And when, when gathering information on this and looking for help and asking questions, be sure that that help and those, the answers to those questions are coming from appropriate sources because the rep said so doesn't help us. When bad stuff happens, they don't go after them. The only people responsible for what's in our charts and our claim forms is us, right? And well, I read that online or so-and-so said none of that stuff works. Be sure you're getting it from appropriate sources. And if it takes a little bit of extra time to do that, it's worth it to better manage your risk, sleep better at night, and know that if somebody comes to read your stuff, they're going to find what they're looking for and leave and go look for trouble somewhere else. Dr. Lerman, thank you so much. This was valuable information. I know everybody listening to this was entertained as well as educated. So I appreciate it. And thank you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. And that's it for this week's episode. But let's continue connecting. If you're enjoying the Insured Connection, don't forget to leave a review on your streaming platform and subscribe now so you can connect with us each time we post a new episode. To stay connected with us throughout the week and to tell us topics we should discuss on future episodes, go to pikagroup.com forward slash insured connection.